Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of HealthX Audio. My name is Theodora, and I am one of your co-hosts here at HealthX Audio. Unfortunately, my co-host Adrienne cannot join us today, which is why we have Saleha here to co-host with me instead. Hi, everyone. So subbing in for Adrienne today. So here at HealthX Audio, I am the audio editor, and I will be joining Theodora as well as Michael and Irene. Uh, today, we're so grateful that Michael and Irene are here today, uh, who are both who both work at accessibility services here at U of T. Um, If you have no idea of what accessibility services are or what they do, let me tell you. Accessibility services is a team of people who help students navigate disability-related barriers to academic success here at U of T. The disabilities can either be temporary or ongoing, but accessibility provides services and supports for learning, problem solving, and inclusion. At the University of Toronto's Accessibility Services, Michael Nicholson is the director and Irene Sullivan is the neurological team lead who focuses on learning disabilities. So let's hop right in. Yeah, for sure. Um, So thank you so much for coming on today. Um, We're so excited to have you here. And we really, really wanted to start with our favorite question, favorite warm-up question, which is, what is your favorite food truck here at UFT? I'll go first. It's a slam dunk for me uh, outside Sydney Smith Hall. Uh, I cannot recall the food truck, but it's it's a dark brown and sort of a a um, I, I believe his name's Ken on it. And they have a poutine there that I cannot walk past every time I go up St. George Street. I cannot walk past that food truck. They have that. They have this poutine. It's nothing fancy, but it is just a really great poutine. If you walk right outside um, the doors of Sid Smith, you you pretty much walk right into his food truck. So that would be my favorite. Uh, My favorite's a a one just that parks just south of uh, Robert's and it's a burger one. I love it because they they know my burger and you go down there and have mushrooms and onions and it's a great day. Um, And every once in a while, the beaver tails one comes into the king circle and if it's there i know it's there and i'm down there so i'm looking forward to having my uh, opportunity for fast food again first of all brown food truck is a classic everybody <laughs> loves the brown food truck i live in uc so it's like right across from me love the brown right. food truck um and second of all i've never had the burger food truck near uh robards i now will look out for it when i get back to campus and i also never knew that they the beaver tail food truck comes on campus. Like, I'm in my fourth year. I've never seen it. <laughs> once in a while. It's a nice treat every once in a while. So I don't think I've, I'm a true Canadian because I've never had a beaver tail. <laughs> Which one do you recommend? The score. One with score. There's a great one with, I call it score. It's, I don't know if it's officially score, but it's, it tastes like a score, like a score bar. So I've got a oh. very bad sweet tooth. So. <laughs> no me as well i will try that one i'll add that to my list yeah there's uh i think there's a beaver tails place down by queen's key so next time i'm down there i am going to go try one as well <laughs> yeah. all right um have you had one Theodora? absolutely not very okay, canadian okay. of me as well <laughs> <laughs> we should try it together <laughs> yes we, we'll do that all right moving on to the next question um so what is one of your favorite experiences at the university of toronto um, I, I actually just love being there, especially during orientation weeks and doing, we have a moving forward that we've done on campus where we just get to meet students. And I like being very much a part of that exciting piece that's going on when uh, people come and they're excited and just open to new things. It just, uh, uh, when we're out on uh, the street there for the club days too, it's just a, a very exciting time. You can really just fill the community. I really, I really like that. And having been a student there some time ago, it uh, 
makes me feel kind of uh, right in the community there. Irene and I are bookending things. I'm on the other end with convocation. That's always my uh, favorite time. And um, I used to actually try to, um, when I was part of university college, I used to love being able to be uh, just at the convocation ceremonies and being able to see students cross the stage that you had been able to uh, support and, and you knew exactly what they'd been through to get to this point in their degree and finish and how much it meant to them as individuals. And just know that you maybe played a, a little bit of a small part in that. So um, that's something I'm reminded of every time I see convocation and I, I, I start to see preparation going on in King's College Circle for the convocation ceremonies. It's always just a nice reminder um, for me that, that there's another group of students who are graduating and, and knowing what they've been through and what they've overcome and, and what accomplishments that they're, they're, they're about to uh, what they're about to have. So that, that's one of my favorites. That's really cool. I personally also love orientation week. Um, I've, I was an orientation leader in my second year and it was really fun. I always thought orientation was super fun and try to get the uh, first year's hype on campus. And the engineers are always really fun to, to see on campus during that period of time as well. Um, haven't experienced convocation, obviously, since Saleha and I are still students here, but. I know, uh, waiting for that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but we're both in fourth year, so mayhaps this will be the year. Um, we get to experience it. <laughs> so let's move on to our more quote-unquote serious questions, our main questions, topical questions for this interview per se. Um, and uh, for, uh, for our first question, we want to talk about registration at accessibility services. So what is that like um, on both ends perhaps? Did you want to go ahead or? I, I can maybe take a, a shot at it first, and, and maybe Irene, you could talk about it from an LD specific perspective, if, if that helps. So, I mean, it can look really different for a, a lot of students, just depending. Um, we have some students who maybe have um, lived with disability related barriers their entire life, and this is something they had an IEP in high school, um, they had certain accommodations set up, and uh, for those students, often it's a case of reaching them during um, welcome events and sort of those types of things. And, and we're sort of, uh, for, for those students, I think registration for us is sort of a continuation of something they had in high school with the added benefit that um, there are so, so, so many more accommodations we have at the university level than they have in high school. So really, <clears throat> in terms of those students, the registration process, I think, is an opening up to a whole wider gamut of, of accommodations and supports that never would have existed in high school to support students. I think for a number of other students though, the registration process is very different. Um, there are students coming from all over the world, all over different experiences. And for them, um, the registration process is a bit more exploratory, if you will. They come to our office and they say, well, I, I think I might have XYZ going on. I'm not sure. I'd like to talk to you about that. Could you help me with that? And, and for those students, it's, it's more of a discussion with their office, discussion with healthcare providers, and, and just sort of more of an exploratory situation where, where we're, we're kind of zeroing in on what's happening, trying a few things out, a bit of a trial and error to see if, if, that, if this, if this works versus that works. And I'm trying to nail things down a bit. So um, it, it, those would be sort of the two extremes um, of sort of the registration process. And then for um, a number of students, there's all kinds of variations in between. But I, I think the big thing is that 
um, for students, no matter what sort of end of the spectrum you're at. Really critical to reach out, ask questions, talk to us. Um, there's sort of a, a misconception that you can't talk to us until you have every T crossed and every I dotted and every piece of, of documentation perfectly done. It's just not the case. Like come talk to us at any point, reach out. We'll have that discussion and, and we'll help you sort of get to the, to the next point. But Irene probably might have some stuff to add on the LP front though. Yeah, and Mike, I think that's really a point I like to drive home too, is that uh, uh, students should come, should come uh, uh, and have a discussion with us. We can often help them figure out how they might be able to get documentation if they need that. Um, and I think lots of times students uh, think they can only come at certain points of the year. We can come any point in the year. Um, and I think sometimes students don't realize that they think they've missed something by not coming at the start of the year. Um, and certainly students are welcome to register at different times in the year as uh, they feel like they want to approach us. Also too, I think uh, for, from an LD perspective, uh, learning disability perspective, a lot of people are worried they don't have the right documents, they're old. Um, please come and talk to us. We always try to work and certainly sometimes we can put something interim in place where we help you. So you're getting off uh, to a good foot in the year um, and get started. And also I, I think for students who come from lots of other countries, in many other countries, they don't have the sort of North American system of special ed services, as you call them in elementary school or support services in high school. So it may very well be that uh, talking about a learning disability, even if there's a word for it in their language, which is actually interesting. I, I met a few students already this um, summer who say there's no such word for learning disability in our country. So they don't even have a context to know that there are supports available at all. So, it, you know, I sort of encourage people who are working with students anywhere on campus to let them know there's some things they just may not know about uh, to reach out. Um, and they don't necessarily have to have something, especially from a learning disability perspective, to start talking to us. Um, sometimes we have some good first steps. And uh, we've worked a lot to develop sort of community relationships with places to get documentation and also, of course, working with health and wellness. So I just really welcome to come and have the discussion. Uh, we have a great intake uh, person who can speak to you. Jen Stewart will speak to you and our other frontline front desk staff will speak to you about some sort of first steps. So it's making that first reach out and uh, if various places, student, other students, other places on campus can encourage students to make that. I think it's a good first step. I, I think sometimes people worry they've got to have all their uh, pieces in a row uh, to, 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 to come to our office. And that's, that's just not the case. First of all, I think, uh, I guess like this, since this is an accessibility series, like in a previous episode, I would have mentioned that I was recently diagnosed with ADHD and I have gotten accessibility um, or like accommodations for it over the summer. Um, so like, I guess like in the terms of registration, like I would say like I'm part of like the middle road people or like one of those people who you guys said like, oh, you don't have to like have all your like eggs, like ducks in order to like come in. But I was one of those people who like were like, oh, my gosh, I got to have everything like done. And so like I actually like went through the healthcare system where I was at in Taiwan, like pretty like rigorously to like get all the documentation before I walked in, um, or I guess emailed you guys. There's no walking in this year, but um, I I wish I knew that I could have just talked to someone because I was like, oh no, like I think I have a learning disability. I'm not sure. So like, I just had to walk through the entire process, like kind of like without any like preparation and just be like walking to a psychiatrist's office and being like, Hey, I think I have ADHD and having them be like, you're an adult woman. How would you have that? And things like that. Um, and it would have been, I think a lot easier if 
I had known that I could have just emailed y'all and been like, hey, these are the problems I've been having. What do y'all think um, instead? Yeah. Well, that's what makes this podcast so important. To, it's uh, reaching out to people and making sure this work gets out. So yeah, yeah. why are so glad we can do this? Definitely. I'm hoping that people will hear this and then like be more willing to just walk in or I guess email you guys about the problems that they're having instead of having to, you know, go through it themselves and try to figure it out. I, I wanted to add to that if I could, especially with this last year, I think there's kind of even more concern on the part of students because healthcare places haven't been open. We've all kind of been stuck inside. It's hard to even call your doctor to get old documents. So I know from a learning disability perspective, we've posted several sort of PowerPoint presentations on our site this year to how to deal with this in COVID when you don't have great docs, especially what you can do and what we might be able to do for you, even if you have really old stuff to get started. So we realized that this this past year has really presented a challenge for people in terms of getting uh, documentation, even if they have good documentation, just actually getting a copy of it is challenging Mm -hmm. and getting to us. So we've placed some uh, things there, I think, on our website too, that just point to you know, what are we going to do in these COVID times, which right now are still persisting to some degree in terms of getting documentation. So we we know that this is a challenge. And um, sometimes with, you know, people have very old things, I say, bring what you got, and, you know, we'll go from there uh, and uh, mm-hmm. try to figure it out in the meantime. Yeah. So as a follow up, I just kind of wanted to ask, like, what is it? What is the intake process like for you guys, like on your end? of? So uh, first of all, when there is an online form that students fill out that ask some questions and I want you know I think sometimes see the people might see the questions as daunting but actually that's part of our first process that helps us to understand a little bit more about you because we have staff that have different skills and uh, it may be more um, a a better fit for us to match you with someone and that information gives us a bit of direction on how to match somebody to uh, someone to do the first intake. I will say that if you have trouble working online or just find it frustrating, you can also get a, a, a copy that you can take your time on, or you can actually even speak to our intake coordinator about working through, making a time to work through the document together, um, uh, if that's a, a better format for a person, um, and that uh, we do all the time. So that form is the form that just tells us a bit about you, what what you're coming for, and do, you know if there's some kind of presenting concerns you have that you want to share with us up front and give us an idea where to match you uh, with someone for a did take appointment. Um, if you have documents, whatever you got, you can upload them then. You don't have to upload them. You can just upload your part. And then there's always a follow-up from our uh, intake coordinator um, with regards to next steps. So even if you've only uploaded your document, um, which is online, you can do it 24 hours a day. It's on our website. There's a link. Um, there's always a follow-up of, of next steps. And it comes pretty fast. I don't know how she gets to them all, but she comes pretty fast in terms of following. Jen Stewart will follow up and our front desk staff to say what the next steps are. So whether we can book an appointment or whether you sent us something we need to want to ask a question or two about, but there is a connecting, we try to connect people quite quickly. Uh, so they know we've got their uh, their form and what's going to happen next. Okay. Just to add to what Irene said, I, I know um, I know there's been concerns just around the length of, of sort of the intake questionnaire that students are asked to fill out as part of the registration process. It is actually something we've been refining for, I, I think there's, we're on about the third version since about 2018. And it is something we're working on getting better and better. Um, there's something we introduced into the form uh, about a year ago called branching. So 
it, there's sort of an intelligence within the form now. So if you answer a certain question a certain way, other questions won't appear that are unnecessary or other questions that might be more pertinent appear. But that form really, 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 really is absolutely critical to us in terms of helping, as Irene said, make sure a student gets to the right, <clears throat> to the right person they need to see. Um, it is, I probably, I don't know, Irene, if you would say a daily, but uh, maybe a weekly occurrence that some student has filled out that form and they're sort of coming at it from a mental health perspective. And Irene uh, doing triage and others are looking through this and saying, oh, um, I kind of have to wonder if there's maybe an undiagnosed learning disability. There may be some pieces around ADHD. There may be this, that, and the other thing because it just hasn't been caught before um, in the high school setting in North America or, or worldwide. So um, it, it really, really is a critical form. The other piece I would mention really too is um, when we are in person, there are peer mentors in our office. So other students who are registered, they will literally sit right beside you at the computer while you fill out the form. And whether it's explaining a question or just being moral support, it, it's another service there. Yeah. So I know you mentioned that there is now a branching aspect. So I'm assuming the form is online. But because of COVID, so you also mentioned um, peer mentors who can help students fill out the form. But because of COVID, have there been alternatives available or? Yeah. So right now, our intake coordinator and our office manager will reach out and work with the student to fill it out. We can also, if they want to fill it out on their own, but just not in the online branching program, we can actually send them a PDF version where they could take it and print it if they needed to um, and or spend more time like start it one day and go back to it another day um, so we that's what we've been doing but, but a lot of phone calls going on some uh, similar to zoom teams meetings to to work with a student on that so we've basically gone online with that service um, and uh, our uh, intake partner has met with many students who just need some help to fill it out or to understand as Mike said a question or hesitant maybe about putting something down until they have a little more explanation so that has continued in that way so Jen Stewart's just kind of pivoted online uh, which you would normally meet some students in person when we were on campus she's just doing it by like a Teams or Zoom meeting or phone if that's what they prefer. Um, and we've been able to help the odd student that is coming from a different time zone. And, you know, we just can't, you know, can't match up sort of daytime. There's been some flexibility to try to help them get that completed as, as possible, uh, you know, as best as possible um, in that version, or they can take it off PDF and do it themselves. And we have set up a, a very secure portal for if they want to send it back that way too, as well. So it's protected. And, and the peer mentors do have appointments available online. It's not quite as nice as it was before where it was just drop-in, but there are appointments you can make with uh, peer mentors online. It's hopefully when we get back to in-person, it will be back to drop-in. Yeah, so I think y'all mentioned that um, when people come in, like you guys like kind of look through the form to like assign them to different advisors or people to talk to them. Um, I didn't know that like the advisors kind of had like different specialties so like what would you say is like the ratio of like advisors like who like of who specialize in like maybe like physical disabilities versus like me yep. mental disabilities and whatnot yep so um anyone so we have 21 advisors um 11 of those advisors are based out of our central office at college in spadina so that's where irene for example and her team work um so any of the advisors working out of the central office at college in Spadina are disability specialists. So that means they're really 
very, very well experienced in a particular type of disability. In every case, they have worked with that disability in a community healthcare setting or something similar before coming into our office. So um, we have our mental health team. That is one team lead plus uh, four, soon to be five advisors. Um, in the case of the mental health team, every single one of those advisors have worked um, in a mental health emergency uh, healthcare setting. So something like the CAMH emergency or something like that. So uh, anyone on the mental health team has had really um, excellent, uh, deep experience in mental health before coming in. Um, in the case of our uh, health mobility sensory team, so this is the team dealing with uh, mobility concerns, so temporary strains, broken bones, et cetera, uh, vision or hearing. <clears throat> Again, uh, all occupational therapists and all people that have experience in the community working with uh, those particular disability types. And again, uh, Irene's team with learning disability. Um, these are all people, I, I, I think Irene, if I'm not mistaken, had a career of almost 25 years um, working in uh, the hospital setting in Toronto before coming to our office um, and, and various others that were working as psychometrists and special ed teachers and all that type of experience on, on Irene's team, special uh, education teachers in high school. So um, really in-depth, uh, really deep experience um, with anyone in the central office. We have our on-location advisors um, who are actually embedded. Uh, we have 10, the other 10 advisors are actually embedded physically in academic departments and units. So we have uh, we have an advisor embedded in University College, in St. Michael's College, in Trinity College, at social work, uh, at engineering, um, in medicine. So in those cases, um, don't mistake me, there's a very deep knowledge of disability, but those advisors are expected to um, also have a very in-depth knowledge of the academic uh, units. This is sort of the, the blessing and the curse of the St. George campus. We have 21 different faculties and divisions um, that we work with on this campus with, with different rules and regulations and policies and practices. So the idea of the on-location model is to ensure we have at least one advisor in our office who's really familiar with the culture and the academic discipline of the uh, particular units. So this is how we sort of trade off. We have a disability expertise and an academic expertise, but that doesn't mean disability expertise and academic expertise doesn't exist in both the central and on-location teams. It's just a bit of a, a, a hybrid model that to my knowledge exists nowhere else in the world other than at, at the University of Toronto St. George campus. The other thing I wanted to add just what Mike said is that uh, I don't want to separate that students ha sometimes have more than one disability or challenge. So all of us deal with have uh, some training in mental health as well to deal with that kind of cross kind of situation where someone may have a couple of uh, areas of challenge that they uh, would like support around um, and uh, accommodation around. And I also want to say we have set up a really consultative process with all our advisors where they we have opportunities all, all week long to meet together and talk about where a student may have a number of needs so we can have the teams come in and support each other if a student you're working with maybe has a new temporary disability you know you were registered for a mental health uh, challenge but now you broke your arm so we may uh, involve uh, our one of our central people to help support what are we going to do for the broken arm or or vice versa there's a new mental health challenge involving um, someone from our uh, central office if necessary or just supporting that uh, other advisor uh, if a student has another disability and they need some um, consultation around that as well so there's that uh, that's going on and it's continued in this sort of online version of all of us consulting with each other all week long really um, uh, around uh, student needs that way 
Right. I definitely think the hybrid model as well as the consultations are really important because intellectual disabilities, physical disabilities, they're continuous. They don't end. They're always changing. But I guess uh, we should move on to our next question. So definitely, um, I know both uh, Theodora and Irene, you also touched on a a little bit on international students. So um, is the registration process more difficult for international students who see doctors and get their documentation outside of Canada? Or is it quite similar? It's if uh, Michael start and you can add, it's quite similar. Uh, We may have to help them support how to get a translation of the document. Uh, We've come up with a few things to help us translate documents. And we do have a bit of a diverse staff in our office too. So sometimes we luck out, there's someone who can, you know, help us translate. And, um, uh, you know, from from a learning display perspective too, assessments are really different around the world. So made a point of connecting and and getting to know uh, providers in other countries as well, really this year, especially, um, and trying to find a network for, uh, some of our students who are actually in other countries looking to get something done, just trying to help connect them as well. Um, we've come up also with some documents to help guide uh, professionals in other countries about what to include, what not to, inc- like would be helpful and what we don't need, like not to spend time and money on. Um, and also do just working to translate as best as possible. Sometimes we can have, um, but I, I would say the process itself is the same. We just may have a little more time figuring out what the document says, and that's more for us to figure out what the document actually says. Um, and then when students do come to, to Canada, if we need something else, connecting them to whether it's some health and wellness on campus or connecting to one of the community places that we've been able to um, make links to uh, if we need some support around, you know, getting newer documentation or updated documentation, or in the case of a student who's never had an assessment, uh, helping find um, supports for how they, that will be paid for. So, um, and how they can get it in the community here. Um, so um, I don't think it's different other than, you know, we have to help with translation. If the document comes in another country, we have to figure that out. But and then those students who come without documents, it's it's the same for any student, you know, who's local who comes without documents. We look for next steps and what we can do to help support that. The only other thing I'd quickly add, <clears throat> it is really critical to get whatever documentation you can from your home country. Um, and bring it with you or, or include that as part of the registration process. I think some students um, have an impression maybe it's preferable to go to health and wellness to, to try to get documents filled out when you're an international student or out of province or something of that nature. It's actually not. Um, our strong, strong, strong preference is to get your documents filled out by the person who knows you best. And um, whether that's in another province or another country, um, absolutely get that filled in. And, and as Irene said, we'll, we'll work with what you have and figure it out from there. But, but just getting that document from the person who knows you best is really, um, really ideal for us. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, I would imagine someone you've seen, you've seen for the, your whole life would be a lot better than like the first person you see at health and wellness. Um, so Moving on, like as someone who was registered over the pandemic, um, have you seen a change in the volume of people trying to like use accessibility services over um, this past year or so? Yes and no. <laughs> so it's complicated. Um, when we went, we pull our numbers usually every April, May. Um, and it was a bit surprising when we pulled our numbers this past year Um, It was the first time in 12 years we hadn't actually seen um, a substantial increase. We've had about 12 consecutive years of 
uh, 10 to 12 percent year-over-year increases in our office and registrations. It's massive. Um, I think when I first came to the office in 2017, we were sitting at 3,000 something students. Uh, last year, we hit 5,200 students, just to give you a sense, even in that short length of time, uh, just what the growth has been. But it, it was interesting when you broke down the numbers, it started to explain things really quickly, why there wasn't much of an increase. So for example, uh, we the, the number of students with head uh, injuries and concussions was almost non-existent. Well, it's COVID, no one's playing sports, uh, no one's going out there, people are traveling less. It kind of makes sense that you would have a lot less uh, head injury concussion. The same with, you know, the broken bones, the strains, the tears, those types of things. The numbers had absolutely uh, plummeted in terms of the number of students registering. And the other thing I think too is, um, is that the university um, back in March, 2020, they also introduced a lot of flexibility into the system that I think really um, resulted in our office not maybe having as many registrations as people might have expected with the shift to online learning. So um, there was sort of different rules around credit, no credit in arts and science or how late withdrawals worked or when drop deadlines occurred or, or, or sort of how a final assessment might take place. There might be more uh, variation how that takes place. And I, I think a lot of that flexibility in the system uh, probably resulted in fewer students maybe registering with their office than may have otherwise. That's not to say, and, and I'll let Irene pick it up here, uh, that's not to say that online learning hasn't created its own uh, sort of challenges. I would say that there are many students who uh, had disability-related barriers in the in-person setting that totally had those barriers eliminated when we moved online. I'd also say the reverse was true, that there were students that had no disability-related barriers when we were in person, and suddenly when we went online, had very significant disability-related barriers that our office had to work with and navigate uh, I'd also say complexity for those students who are still with us did go up during COVID. So maybe while actual real numbers uh, didn't, I would say the complexity of the situations coming in was probably higher. It's a bit of less of a bit harder thing to sort of quantify statistically, but I think universally the advisors would agree. Um, and I know Irene would want to pick up on this point too. Yeah, I, yeah, Mike, I agree with everything you said, and I think the complexity has certainly gone up in terms of people are just dealing with a lot more um, mental health challenges. It's been a very isolating year for a lot of people, and I think also too. Um, a lot of students had strategies that worked for them and they were set up based on being in person and in an in-person environment, whether it's what they do in the classroom or even using the campus in a lot of ways to manage, manage disability. A lot of the students I work with um, who have ADHD really like the hustle and bustle in the background of working in a library. None of that was open. Um, everything was turned to online. Uh, for a lot of people who need to use certain kinds of tools and where paper and pencil is better than being online, that's kind of been very much a challenge. So I think there's also some students who just realized that this wasn't the format for them, no matter how much was flexible, it still wasn't a great ideal format. So some may not have, have chosen to take a smaller load or, or stop for a little bit and come back. Certainly for students with head injury, being online uh, is not the best thing. It's actually the number one recommendation to do, not do, is to, it's actually usually to get offline. So it's been a challenging year for that group as well. But, and then for some other students, Mike said it did eliminate some barriers in a different way for them. But also I wanted, you know, just 
lots of students are living in different environments and move to different environments. And I think that created a lot of good things for some people and for other people in challenging environments that they had to go to or return to that weren't, you know, quiet maybe uh, for their learning or now are bringing a lot of family members under one small space, all trying to carry out their jobs and academics. So there's been challenges that way. So that I think the complexity is one of the things I really noticed this year is students really, um, uh, facing complex situations, both to do with academics and living, and also to having to learn new ways to manage their disabilities. So, you know, what worked in person can't work online. So just having to incorporate new strategies, learn new ways, while still trying to do the work, I, I think has added to the complexity and some, and quite frankly, the support that they have needed from our service um, and, and the number of kind of reaching for appointments and said, so, you know, what can I do in this situation? What would help here? Um, so I think that's added to the complexity too, which isn't reflected in our overall number, to be honest. Yeah, I, I, I suspect next year's numbers, uh, assuming in-person unfolds the way we expect this year, will be probably back to where they were. I, I think just add to the complexity piece, I think it's been a lot harder for advisors as well um, to do virtual stuff. Um, students are doing a lot more email than they ever did before. And we're having advisors sort of coming in and having two and 300 emails sometimes a day, whereas some of that stuff might have been dealt with through a drop-in or through an appointment or through an in-person interaction. So what we're finding now is really complex, challenging sort of student situations are being navigated by email or, or through sort of means like that. And, and often it means things get drawn out more. It, it takes a lot more time to sort out. It, it's a lot more impersonal, those types of things. So there, there's sort of complexity piled on complexity, I think, with COVID and a lot of the shift to virtual. It's really nice to hear the statistics and the divide between um, post-pandemic versus during the pandemic. But also I was wondering, so during the winter semester when the pandemic first happened, I know that we had different options like credit, no credit or unlimited credit, no credit and things like that. But um, going into the fall semester now, those options don't really exist on all campuses. So have you seen a difference in the numbers or like the statistics from last year, maybe like uh, winter semester versus the summer, fall, winter um, of 2021 or... Is it still fairly similar? As far as I can tell, it's still fairly similar. We haven't, um, to, be, to be frank, haven't pulled our summer 2021 data just yet to do a year-over-year -year comparator. It's it, it's a little bit hard to look at it. We've been trying to look at it in sort of 12-month chunks as opposed to sort of four-month chunks. But uh, sorry, I should have had an answer coming into this meeting. I should have expected that one as a question, but I, I don't have it off the, the top of my head. But um I, I just don't know off the top of my head um, just where summer 2020 versus 2021 is. Um, and it's still a bit early to know just where fall 2021 is going to be at because we had a um, sort of request of students that around July 17th, 18th, they submit their registration package, but we're still getting, you know, 10, 20, 30, 40 packages a day some days um, for fall uh, 2021 um, term. So it, it's still a bit of a, a work in progress to sort of see where that's going to land but um but probably by january uh, february 2022 we'll have a bit of a better sense of where where fall landed and, and what's happened there i would just add it's more anecdotal than anything i do find that more students seem to, uh, some students have seemed to have taken the summer off as a break i think the year has been taxing for people and they've taken off to refresh a bit but then some other students who haven't been able to sort of find work or the things they usually do in the summer and, and with things being restricted have taken a course or two um 
you know, to in the summer, um, cause they're still really much, you know, close to home. But I think some students have found, you know, just, it's been an exhausting year in a lot of ways. And I think there's been, I know some of the students that I traditionally see take summer have, have stepped away to have a little bit of a break and very much looking forward to hopefully, um, you know, things being much more open and then being able to access more things. Uh, but that's more just anecdote. Yeah, what I was going to talk about before Saleha asked her new question was that I understand like the complexity of things because when you were talking about how like in-person coping mechanisms don't work anymore, like I like that really resonated with me because I think if the pandemic didn't happen, I don't think I would have ever walked into a psychiatrist's office in the first place because I already knew what made it work for me. Like I would always sit in the front row. I would talk to the profs. Like I knew what made it work for me, but in an online setting that just like didn't work at all. Like even through like a computer screen, like a live stream, I was like, this doesn't work because like the, the prof can't see me or like the social aspect of it doesn't work anymore. Or like in terms of like asynchronous lectures, because I'm the psychology department, most of our classes were asynchronous. Like I'm the type of person who like will read TED Talks. I won't watch them. I will read them. And like that was just insanely hard for me to do, which is why I ended up walking in to a psychiatrist's office and like ended up here with accessibility. Like I know that for maybe a lot of other students that if the pandemic didn't happen, I don't think they would have walked in either. Yeah. And I, I really agree with that. I mean, you, you you sort of sum up what lots of students say to me is that uh, even if they formally or informally knew they had some challenges, they had figured out what worked for them. And now there's this whole new way of doing everything, um, none of which they plan to be doing. And actually for a lot of students, they actually don't spend a ton. They try to stay off the computer and you had no choice now. It was a whole different way. And, and just the feedback you get from being with other people or having, like you say, the inputs in the environments make such a difference. So I would say lots, there were many students who described that to me as I, I, I was doing fine. It all worked. I had my ways and none of them are working right now. And, and I think that's, uh, you're, you're right. Why lots of people do walk in the door and it's certainly um, a number of students walked in the door with that. Like my old ways don't work in the way we're learning right now. It, it, it's sort of that challenge opportunity piece where, where sort of uh, you, you had a way that was, was working. Um, the challenge is presented. There's an opportunity to maybe fully explore something. It might not have been explored otherwise. The, the, the challenge isn't necessarily something one wants in front of them or wants to have to go through, but there, there maybe are some, some pieces coming out of that that are helpful sort of from a, a life perspective, but it's, it's a double-edged sword. I, I appreciate it. Yeah, I honestly definitely agree. Online learning is completely different than in-person because we don't have that in-person interaction. And at, like at school, we're going from class to class or like lecture to lecture. But here at home, it's like our lecture to lecture is a different tab. It's not a different, you know, a different room or a different environment. So it's just the same continuous environment. Um, I guess to like uh, switch gears a little bit or kind of on the same path, um, what aspects of online learning can be more difficult for students with learning disabilities? I'll start, Mike, feel free to add. There's, there, there's it, you know, here's the thing, first of all, I want to say is that everybody's learning disability is so different. And, and so it's hard to speak in a bit of generalities, but I'll give you some of the kinds of things that students have presented. Uh, um, but it's so different for everybody, uh, whether it's a reading disability, disability, a challenge in math, a challenge with written expression, very different. So uh, certainly online has, uh, for a lot of students, uh, people like hard copies of things, being able to print everything out, look at the hard textbook, highlight the hard textbook, um, make notes along the hard textbook. Those things have been hard. I think a lot of people think that 
online textbooks are great for everyone, but they're not for everyone. So a lot of people need the tactile of touching the paper and being able to do things on a page. Um, some apps don't work as well um, as they do when you can use them on other devices. So recordings work in some ways and not in others. Um, I think what's happened too is that um, uh, you don't have the same structure and contact with uh other students to work on group work in the same way, even though you can do Zoom meetings and, and group meetings, uh, that in-person thing is challenging. And I think what works a lot for a number of students with learning display is having things presented in modimodal ways. So in many different ways, hearing it, seeing it, having it come back and forth, being able to ask questions in the moment. So you can imagine an asynchronous uh, um, lecture that you may have, you can read it, but you can't ask a question in the moment um, in the same way. And that's challenging. Um, you might be able to work with a group, but only online and all you can figure is what's going on um, on the Zoom call if everyone's on the screen. And in many cases, people weren't in environments or felt comfortable putting their picture on the screen. So you can pick up on all the extra cues you get when you meet with people in person that make it helpful uh, for certain kinds of learning disabilities. Uh, we've had to pivot on how to help them use their technology uh, from a distance too. So that's a little more challenging. Um, I, our adaptive technologies worked very hard to try to help people learn technology through like Zoom really and Zoom and Teams. Um, so I think the challenges are that you can't use a lot of your tools. Also to just being able to move from subject to subject. And I think uh, we were mentioning this earlier, it came up from a few of us is that, is that whole idea of there's some structure that comes from going from class to class, helps you move to things. You can also ask questions in a moment of a piercing beside you in the class if you missed a bit of notes. We were very fortunate to have a lot of our volunteer note takers still take on uploading their notes, which has been tremendous um, as well. So they're still uploading notes into our peer note taking system for students. So that's been helpful as well. Um, and also just uh, because we've been in this format, I think a lot of things have involved more writing and uh, writing is very much a challenge for some types of learning disabilities. Um, um, so I think those are some of, some of the factors there. Um, I think a lot of things turned into more long written things and that's been challenging as well. And just not having that, even as an advisor working with a student with a learning disability, I often sit in a room beside someone and show them things, show them different uh, tools. It's, it, we're doing it by uh, virtually, but it is more challenging sometimes to, to, to for this, for the student to pick up on what you're showing them. And some people, right, frankly, like those paper aids to stick up on the fridge or wherever that are helpful. And so those are other things that have been challenging as well. And I think a number of students who have these disabilities may have just chosen to take maybe a smaller load of courses as well, because it's the format's been entirely different and the strategies don't work the same way for them. That makes a lot of sense. Um, actually, we've previously talked to um, one of the people who work at the APHD department, Todd Cunningham is his name, and he does a lot of, um, like, he works with online tools for learning disabilities. So um, if you haven't checked that out or checked that episode out or looked on our, I guess, our um, Instagram page for, like, the the resources, like, please go do that. But I think when we were talking to Todd, like, his what his lab is doing is incredible and it it's not just for people with this learning disabilities it really helps everybody like it helps them figure out like what your weaknesses are in learning and like what tools you can use to assist that and Todd, Todd's a great resource and Todd actually and I worked on a few like complex situations together I think there is a lot of great technology and I think a lot of people have discovered a lot of new tools and I actually have to say 
COVID has been impetus for a lot of new tools to be developed as well, which has been great. And I think also too, I think people don't even, not just students have not appreciated even what's built into your own computer. I don't, there's whole accessibility pieces built into everyone's computer that I don't think we ever peek and look at uh, uh, most of the time unless someone points them out. But yes, there's a lot of great apps out there. Um, and uh, we certainly found a lot of new ones for recording, note-taking, note-organizing in this past year. So it, it's a really growing bank. I think we had a bank and we've grown it big, larger. And uh, Todd's a great resource. His work is, is, is great in terms of just uh, developing new things and just uh, tools that we can all use. Because I think what, we, what we're really aiming for is, you know, that kind of universal design approach where uh, anyone can access the learning and they can grab different tools to help them access the learning in, in the big picture. And actually, like, segues perfectly into our next question, which is, like, do you have any recommendations, like, any helpful tools that you think students may be able to use? Um, any new technologies that you've been really excited about you want to talk about? Irene might have the technology pieces. I, I, the thing that I've been really excited about that our office um, sort of pioneered during uh, COVID was the accountability check-in. So, Basically what that is, is it's something where a group of students can online get together on a Monday, talk about what they have coming up for the week, uh, talk about assignments and challenges and things like that, and then get together on Friday and meet again virtually online and uh, sort of just be able to discuss. So a lot of those things that we've talked about a little bit here about, um, you know, losing that face-to-face that -face connection and, and some of that routine that you often have being a student in person. Um, that's been something I've been really excited about that's come out of uh, come out of the pandemic and some of our new programming and those check-ins and, and something undoubtedly that will be um, continuing even though we, we return in person. I, I imagine Irene has a few technological pieces. Uh, oh, and um, I'm just absolutely excited by a lot of the new features that uh, Zoom and um, the, the, the leaps and bounds that AI technology has grown in in the last year or so in terms of voice recognition. Um, it, it's amazing just, just the improvement I've seen in the last year or so since COVID's happened around the, the platforms just improving in terms of, of being able to, to do the speech to text and actually getting it right and actually getting some of the more complex um, sort of wording and vernacular because that was always the challenge with a lot of these AI uh, platforms is they could never quite grasp some of the technical uh, academic language, but they, they've grown in leaps and bounds in terms of, of some of those improvements. So I think that's going to be a really positive takeaway uh, coming out of COVID in terms of things that we can use. But Irene, I know you'll have to speak through. Yeah, there's a lot of new technology. Mike, I just wanted to pick up on what you said about peers, the peer opportunities and just the check-ins, accountability check-ins. I just think we've also just expanded a lot of the ways peer uh, uh, interaction as possible as well. And I actually, I think, sorry, trap going by, the beauties of working at home. Um, I think there's just been a lot of opportunities to connect with peers. And I actually really think there's so much to be picked up by working with peers who are actually in academics or going through the experience at the same time. Um, and also to uh, just have maybe experienced something already and can help you with the ropes through something. I always say it's great to learn things. Sometimes maybe someone's figured out a way, benefit from that. I always say build your toolkit. There's nothing wrong with having kind of a range of things in your toolkit because I don't think anything's a one fix all. It's kind of things you can pull out in different situations. There have been a lot of uh, technology improvements and, and um, there are some apps that we use a lot, but I know they're using more. Uh, we're using um, 
uh, MindView, uh, there's uh, a Otter AI. And I, the reason I mentioned some of these, and I could mention a whole pile of them, is that a lot of them offer free trials where you can try them. I really suggest, you know, there's an attractiveness about technology, but it doesn't work for everybody. And um, they, they, they're investments too. So I always say try before you buy, because once you buy, these things aren't returnable. But um, Otter AI is one that allows you to be in busy spaces and pick up conversation. It uh, doesn't work so well with recording a lecture, but also busy group things. And I know a lot of students have trouble when there's a lot of conversation going on. They're trying to take in lots of information. MindView is a great organizer. We used to use something called Inspiration, but MindView is another really great organizer to just break down what you have to do. I like some of our simple tools. I know they sound simple, but the assignment calculator that we have available on campus is a great way to break down work. I think a lot of students stare at a pile of work from a syllabus in the fall and go, wow, I've got to get this done somehow. And I really like to encourage people to see it as smaller bits and the assignment calculator can help you break these really you know, larger assignments down into smaller sections. We show a lot of people the accessibility features in their own computer. Literally, if you go into the main test bar and put accessibility and look at the features, most people's computers actually have versions of um, maybe not as sophisticated, but of things like Dragon, where you can have you can talk to your computer and it will write down what you, you know, roughly write down what you're saying. So it allows you to dump out your ideas. I think it's a great tool. A lot of people get stuck staring at that blank screen as where I'm going to start my paper. Uh, and it allows you to dump out some ideas and to try out a bit of um, speech to text software. And the same for reading software. Uh, computers have built into them uh, uh, speech to text. So the other way around, so you can hear your readings and that's a very helpful tool. And then if you're coming to accessibility, we have some access to those tools. We have a site license for a kind of software that helps with reading, but also for many students, at least, it's not all students, but there's other ways we can look to, for funds to support some things, is students in Ontario who are eligible for OSAP may be eligible for the bursary for students with disabilities, which offers all kinds of supports for technology that fit with your disability and other ways of supporting your learning. So I think it's really about building a toolkit. I really see that's part of my role is to help students expand their toolkit and have new things, not just accommodations like test writing time and stuff like that, but building a toolkit because one thing doesn't fit every assignment or every class or every task you're trying to do. Um, but we have adaptive technology and a half right now. We got an extra little half this year. Um, thanks. But uh, they can actually go through technology because it's very specific. I don't find the same technology will work for same student and sometimes can actually be frustrating. Um, so I actually sometimes this year I've really recommended people getting off technology to break up working on paper. And it sounds kind of simple to work on paper, but actually we do know there's a lot of good things about getting the mind off the computer screen and switching it up to refresh cognitive skills. So really it's a personal building of toolkit. I really think taking in peers is a really big part as well um, because you uh, uh, there's something to be, said for building a bit of community around some of the experiences you're having. Um, and I really encourage students to come and, and see that. And I'll, I also want to speak about our other student life partners, academic success, a lot of great tools and workshops there that uh, I think uh, are really good to grab and be involved into. And a lot of just resources on the site that if on how to read uh, effect more effectively, how to take notes more effectively as well. Um, and that those are really good supports as well. No, I definitely agree that just one tool isn't um, fit for all. I was actually wondering, do you have like a resource bank or kind of like a list that students can access 
um, after listening to this podcast with those resources or is that still in the works? There are some bits that are still in the works. And uh, the reason is, is and, and uh, I'm always hesitant. We, we, we'll put some general things together uh, and we have been building that more. I think the thing is that some of them um, really work for some people more than others. So it's worth the try. And sometimes uh, coming to meet with our adaptive technologist, he can show you them without you have bearing a cost to see them too, which is helpful. Um, and some of them have costs, but uh, there are some that we could put together. We have sort of some rough lists we work with. I'm happy to, to work to post those. Um, uh, it just uh, may take a little bit because we want to make sure we always have the latest versions. And if you can imagine, this year has been like an evolving science with regards to that you basically go to a link load and then it's you know it's outdated the next week because they're making improvements to to handle what's going on in the world in terms of the online but happy to post some general ones that might just be helpful for students um again some will, will be not helpful at all for some students um and uh, others you might really love but yeah happy to do that what i'll also do is in the chat our adaptive technologists sort of when covid first broke out did up a bit of an et guide to utilizing a lot of the common um a lot of the common software and just how to use it on a mac versus a windows um i'll post that in the chat it's on our website but i'll post that in the chat that's one thing that i think uh that would be great yeah thank you for that yeah, so moving on to like more overall picture questions um like our first one is that, like, why do you think some students may hesitate to reach out for resources that they need? So every year our office does a student survey. And uh, I mentioned before, we have about 5,200 students. We typically get, um, this is the third year. We did the survey this past May. It's the third year we've done the survey. Uh, typically we get somewhere between 1,100 and 1,300 responses. So it's a really strong um, response rate for a survey. So hovering around 25%. This is actually one of the questions we ask in the survey is, when did you first learn about accessibility services? Um, when did you first submit your registration package? And then if we see sort of a significant gap of time between when students are submitting, uh, hearing about accessibility services and submitting those packages, we ask students to explain to us a bit more about what, what was that about? Like why, what was sort of the barrier for you in terms of registering with the service, even though you've been to an orientation event or you've, you've been somewhere where you'd heard about the service in the office. So what, what tends to get a bit more interesting is when you start breaking down responses by disability type. So for students who are living with sort of sensory related disabilities, so hearing, vision, mobility, it, it's, it's pretty automatic that sort of the survey data said they heard about accessibility services, they got the package in, they registered. Um, on the complete other end of the extreme were students who um, identified as living with mental health related barriers. Um, it, it could be three months, it could be six months, it could be two years. And the main reason for that that students identified was not surprisingly stigma. It was still that feeling that um, either they themselves didn't um, didn't want to sort of have any kind of a label that maybe uh, identified them as being quote unquote disabled. I, I don't even myself use the word disabled any more than I, I have to because I know there's really strong feelings in the community either uh, either for people identifying really strongly with that word or having a really strong um, dislike for that word. But, but whatever way you put it, um, stigma in its many forms was the main barrier for students with mental health concerns in terms of registering. On the LD front, um, I think it was kind of somewhere in between, if I recall, 
kind of somewhere in between the pieces around um, the pieces around uh, the students, maybe in the more the mobility sensory area versus mental health, but but not uncommon there as well to see students who um, are are sort of reporting delays in registering around stigma. But but sort of the second piece being they want to students sort of report that they want to just try it on their own. They want to see if they can do this without the accommodations. And that's especially common uh, coming from high school, especially for a student who's maybe been having had the IEP since grade eight and, you know, they, they felt like they were maybe separated from their peers or um, that didn't sort of like that whole association with an IEP. They're getting to university, they're viewing it as a fresh start and they want to just give it a try and see it how it goes without accommodations because they maybe feel um, they, they've kind of figured these things out and, and then hesitate to register. And, and then unfortunately, I'm, I'm sure for some students, I can't say, I can't say I can't speak for the students that don't register and don't show up to see us how because uh, we don't really hear from them. But but we do hear from a lot, a lot, a lot of students who, who give it a try and, you know, it didn't quite work out as they'd hoped. And then we're sort of in a situation where grades have, have not been what students had hoped and, and we're trying to go back retroactively and look at things. So, um, but, but, and I'm sure anecdotally being on the front lines, Irene would have things to add, but, but in terms of the survey, it was stigma and, and just wanting to give it a try on their own were the two main reasons students were reporting. I agree, Mike, with all those points. The only, the only things I would add is that there are a lot of students who just past experience hasn't been good in their life in, in sharing their disability, whether it was in school or for older students coming from a workplace where it hasn't been received well, or they feel have felt judged in some way in those settings. So they're, they're concerned that it will happen in a setting. And I, I, I mentioned also too, from the perspective of, I just want to assure people about the privacy. This is why the university has our office have those documentation about your disability. It's in that it's located in our office and that kind of documentation is in our office and in our space. Um, and I have lots of students too, who just aren't aware that uh, when they think about disability, whether it's from another country or just their experience in their life, who they've met in their life, they think about disability as being visible and that those are the only disabilities who can register. So often just an, a not understanding that our disability, visible, disabilities that we don't wear on, on to, that aren't shown, um, that they can't register for it. And also I'd just like to like assure students about registering for temporary disabilities. A lot of students just don't realize you can register for that broken bone or if you had a concussion and you, and you have a week or two or something that's come up that's brief, but is, uh, is creating a disability for you. I think sometimes students don't know they can register for those temporary things and they think they can't, so they don't register and they just kind of struggle and may come to us in a roundabout way with working with a registrar or whatever about knowing about our service. Um, and uh, a lot of um, students actually, and totally just internationally will say they're worried about where this information will be. Will it be on my transcript? Will there be some kind of stamp? And I just want to assure people that that's not the case. Um, and I think that's concern is how it might impact someone even beyond the education that some you know document exists on our transcript that says, I, I, I have a disability. So I think just kind of helping people understand those aren't the case um, may help assure some other people, but certainly stigma uh, is, is a big one as well. And, and just to add to some of those pieces, about 52% of our students last year were registered for mental health related concerns and disabilities. Um, the other piece is about 93% of students, I believe, are registered for, um, some people call them uh, uh, invisible or non-evident uh, disabilities. So 
um, just to give some context around that. But but there is, as Irene says, the the common conception. This is why we don't typically like our office being associated with the uh, wheelchair visual. I mean, as much as we obviously support people who have mobility bar barriers and and we use wheelchairs, I, I think it, it often gives people the wrong impression that that it's sort of visible or evident disabilities that we're working with primarily, and it's not. Right, that's a really good point you bring up, uh, both of you. I know stigma still exists, um, not only in our community, but also in communities like back home or internationally. I know, Irene, you mentioned in, I think the first question, you were saying that um, some people come from other countries or like international students who don't really even have a word for disability. So I know that like when I hear things like this from people back home, I hear um, them saying um, these concepts or like they mention uh, people with disabilities with more of like a negative connotation than not. So I think that's also a barrier that exists. And that's also why people don't feel as comfortable accessing these services. Like at least for ADHD, there is definitely a word for it. Like um, at least in Mandarin, um, that's the other language I speak and where I've been in Taiwan the past year, that is the main language of communication. Um, I'm sure there is a word for learning disability as well. I think a lot of different countries are starting to like translate the DSM-5 and like working towards um, making sure there's language to describe what um, like things that they have to diagnose people with. Um, but I can say the stigma is definitely really heavily there. Like my mom really didn't want me to go see a doctor for this. She was like, you're fine. You're just lazy, whatever, dot, dot, dot. Like she really didn't want me to see a doctor. And I think in a lot of more conservative families or more conservative cultures, especially the ones that are more like community-based where your like family image is really important. Um, things like learning disabilities or mental health disorders are very, very frowned upon. Um, they're a shame, a black mark on your family or whatever. Um, and I can definitely see like a lot of international students being less likely or less willing to go seek help in this area just due to that factor. What, what, what we have are the often these sort of soul crushing situations. Students are coming in and you're asking them to sort of describe their experience and in university, especially when they're having adversity. And you'll hear students use phrases like, I'm stupid, I'm lazy, I'm not working hard enough, uh, I'm not good enough, I'm not smart enough. And, and, and when you start to ask students to unpack sort of some of these words, like, why are you saying you're lazy? Why are you saying sort of a lot of these negative words? Like, what, what has happened? Like, what, what has been your experience when you go to study or when you go down to read a book or when you go to write a paper? Like, what is your experience around that? And unpack it. That, that's when more often than not, we we start to uncover in our office some of these pieces around disability, but it's, as you say, Celia, it, it's sort of a lot of these, these really negative words get substituted um, for students to describe their experience. And that's why it's really so critical for people in jobs such as ours and student services to really, you know, it, it's not just saying, no, you're not stupid. I mean, it's really unpacking. Um, what does that mean? Where is that coming from? What is your experience? And, and, and really try to help the student get at the root of, of the issue because it, it's, uh, it's, it's yet to be my experience that the student using those words actually are what they say they are. Um, it's, it's something else going on. And, and I would just like to add that I think a lot of times students are hesitant to, like they want to, they, they want to know, but the assessment scares them a little bit that it will show that they aren't smart. And actually really for me, what's, I mean, clearly we're identifying whether someone has a learning disability in the assessment, but also really what I want to know and which helps me the most help the student going forward is not just knowing if they have areas of weakness, but where their strengths are, because that's really how we tailor 
accommodations and strategies and supports is knowing what they're strong at and what how can we use that uh, uh, to support them uh, in their learning situation. So I always try to talk about, I actually always talk about strengths probably more than I talk about weaknesses because I'm my goal is to help them go forward in their learning. And uh, so it's really about understanding what works uh, a little bit better to, in my mind. Um, uh, in, and it's really important. And it's why I can't like, talk about what every piece of technology will work for one person because it's really understanding that piece. And that's how I see what the documents add for me. It's not just a, a paper I need to have. It actually really explains where I go forward here. And I actually really think uh, it's very enlightening for a lot of people when they have it, just as it gives them a kind of a framework for things they felt that they've maybe not had a good explanation for or a way to even self-advocate because they can speak about their strengths too, right? Right. Um, I definitely think that so amplifying strengths is definitely one of the biggest things that um, a lot of communities and cultures don't really, you know, they don't really practice that. So I think that's good that you do that. But also, um, Michael, when you mentioned the words um, that some people use to describe how they behave or like more so their experiences with education, um, those negative words, it also comes, I noticed that, um, or like it kind of rang a bell, that also is portrayed in uh, media. So like things like that, the student needs to be disciplined or something like that, but that's not the case, right? So, um, but I've also noticed that employers are now including kind of like a little bit uh, of a paragraph that if you do require these accommodations or if you are from a racialized background, whatever, um, we do accommodate you and you are prioritized, please mention that. So I think things like this will kind of uh, create like changes in our system, but there's still a lot to be done. I, I think so long as we have sort of a one size fits all um, sort of model of learning and, and teaching, um, there are gonna be people who are, are sort of well tailored just in terms of their makeup for that and other people who are not. And um, the more we can do to do UDL and, and inclusive design and these sorts of things, um, the more, um, you know, more, more students, whether they have disabilities or not, are, are going to sort of benefit from it. But, but I, I agree, there's lots of positive, positive signs. A lot's changed in that very short length of time. And it's everything's headed in the right direction, for sure. Yeah, for sure. I guess um, just to move on to kind of our last question. So on a larger scale, not just at the University of Toronto, what are some changes you'd like to see to improve accessibility for those with learning disabilities in daily life? Well, I, I think the more we can present information, whether it's in workplaces or businesses or community in multimodal ways. I mean, I think, you know, with technology, everyone's gotten very excited about all the social media and all those kinds of online things. But for a lot of people, that's not necessarily the best mode. So the more ways we can present things, um, I think the more, like, you know, posting something and also having it uh, visually. Um so not just relying on people being able to read large amounts of text on websites that are really compact. I mean, there's been, you've probably seen, there's been a lot of sort of accessibility guidelines, not just uh, locally, but a lot of improvement websites uh, for all kinds of things from stores to businesses trying to improve their websites to be more accessible. We think reading text and a lot of stuff on a screen is so wonderful. It's not wonderful for everybody. So especially this year, I think, um, uh, you know, having your websites, since we've been online, having your websites and online kinds of links have uh, the ability to change the text size, to to um, change the color, um, to change, you know, the tones of things, to take, to, to go to smaller screens where there's less information has really been important in online environments. But having ways that people can download something, we've gone very online, 
not just at the university, but in the world right now, where things can't be downloaded and printed off. Uh, it's online, but you can't get a copy off if you need it. So making things available in multiple ways so a person can tailor how they get that off. Making instructions very explicit. Don't assume everybody can take in your one idea. Make sure you show steps on things. Uh, and if people need the steps, they can look at it. If they don't, and can glance at the larger uh, um, situation and just grab the information. That's great. But it gives a person a very way to grab it with having always ask somebody, what does it mean? Um, but also having uh, ways for people to, to ask questions too, if they need to. So I just think the more we can put things in multiple ways for people to participate and to take in information will be helpful. And we're seeing more and more that you're seeing that, for example, like you were mentioning earlier about just even uh, being able to uh, bring forward an accessibility need before you go to an interview and saying, you know, it would be helpful for me to have a copy of the question so I can print them out when we're having our interview. Uh, sounds like a simple thing, but if you're not someone who has a strong working memory and you want to be able to look at it and answer your question, you don't want to be how the person views you to be about, you want it to be about your answer, not that you can't remember the question, rather want you to be able to give you an opportunity to express your intelligence because you've got the information you need. So opportunities where people can get information in different ways uh, and not assume that everybody, the world is so auditory in lots of ways um, to remember that a lot of people need visuals, um, not because they can't see it, it just helps them with taking all the information. They actually see the material on the page, but they actually need to time to take it in or to refer to it. Uh, and then it allows a person to show their skill um, uh, rather than worry about whether they read the question right. Um, so more opportunities to put things in multimodal ways of getting it um, would be best. Uh, even on websites, you know, if you can listen to it, press a button, listen to something rather than just always have to look at it. Those kinds of things are helpful. I have a bit of a different uh, slant, but, but totally agree with everything you just said, Irene. Um, I think anything we can do to start looking at some of our our programming um, um, around work study and things like this uh, um, to help ensure people with learning disabilities are getting actual real good uh, workplace experience while they're students so that they can build resumes, uh, so that they can get references, all these types of things. This is often sometimes a common barrier students will have if, if sort of they have a, a learning related disability or another related disability for that matter that may not, may not necessarily be um, may pose some barriers in a traditional workplace setting. Sometimes that means these students don't get that kind of experience during their university time, which, which a lot of university students do. They're building up their resume while they're going to school, et cetera. And then when they go to apply for jobs uh, post-graduation, uh, they have the resume and they have the background and these types of things. And um, something we're hoping to do with the new uh, career, uh, new position, the university's just a uh, new permanent position, the university's just funded a, a new accessibility career educator role. Uh, that's going to be that person's specific job at the university, uh, hopefully coming online this fall, is just looking at some of these pieces around um, workplace integrated learning and accessibility and just um, accommodations and just helping students uh, with, with particular disability barriers that, that do commonly come up in the workplace setting, get that experience they need so that they're, they're sort of in a similar position to other students. And, and, and they're getting... Um, they're learning how to navigate the workplace at a safer time in their career while supports such as ours are still in place rather than after graduation where they may not exist. So really excited for that role uh, coming down the pipe and, and some opportunities that might be creating for, um, for students with learning disabilities, et cetera, to get some really great workplace experience. Both of those sound great. I definitely think there's a lot of improvement required, but also we're still on a pretty good path towards providing resources and services to students. 
who required those accommodations. Yeah, for sure. Those are all the questions we have had prepared today. So thank you so much to both Michael and Irene for you guys to come on today. It was really helpful. I think both Saleha and I learned a lot today about how accessibility services works from within and how you guys look at students um, who come in through the intake process. Great being here and thank you so much for all again for all the work uh, all of you are doing to uh, to uh, not only get our message out but it sounds like a lot of really other great messages so I'll be I'll be going back through the podcast as having a listen. Thank you. Thanks very much for inviting us today. Really appreciate the conversation. Thank you for joining us. I definitely learned a lot and I know Theo did as well so thank you both. Yeah, thank you. Thank you.